every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and a warm welcome to Wednesday's Money Talk. This is Peter Lewis. Thank you for making this podcast one of the 10 most listened to financial podcasts on Apple Podcasts in Hong Kong. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. This program is also on Google Podcasts and on Spotify as well. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the pace of inflation in the US eased to its lowest level in more than two years in May, driven by a decline in energy prices. Headline consumer price inflation slowed to 4% year on year, down from 4.9% in April, marking its lowest level since March 2021. China's central bank lowered a key short-term policy rate Tuesday as it deals with disappointing economic data in the country. In a surprise move, the PBOC cut its seven-day reverse repurchase rate by 10 basis points from 2% to 1.9%, injecting 2 billion Chinese yuan, that's about 280 million US dollars of short-term liquidity into the interbank market. That's the central bank's first such move since August 2022. Loan data from China largely missed expectations and reinforced the recent indications of a sluggish recovery in the world's second largest economy. China's banks provided 1.36 trillion yuan in new yuan loans in May, increasing from 0.72 trillion yuan in the previous month, but falling short of market expectations. China's total social financing, which is a broad measure of credit and liquidity in the economy, rose to 1.56 trillion yuan in May, up from 1.22 trillion in the previous month, but also below market expectations of 2 trillion yuan. Hong Kong will ease entry rules for foreign workers to stem a manpower shortage in the financial hub. Chief Executive John Lee warned Tuesday of a risk to the city's economy and competitiveness, saying when we have a serious labour crunch, if we do nothing about that, the entire community will be affected. The CE said the scheme is not meant to be long term and will stick to the principle of protecting the job security of local workers. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, founder of Financial Shield, and Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. And with a view from Japan is Nick Smith, Chief, Chief, Japan, Strata- Chief Japan Strategist at CLSA. U.S. stocks rallied on Tuesday after the pace of U.S. inflation eased to its lowest level in more than two years, bolstering investors' expectations that the Fed won't raise interest rates tonight. The S&P 500 rose 0.7% to 4,369, pushing higher into the bull market territory it entered last week. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite added 0.8% to close at 13,573. Both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq are at their highest levels in 14 months. The Dow traded 146 points higher, or 0.4%, to close at 34,212. NVIDIA closed with a $1 trillion valuation for the first time ever. Shares in the chipmaker regarded by Wall Street as one of the big beneficiaries from the surge in developments around artificial intelligence closed 3.9% higher on Tuesday. And Tesla rose 3.6%. That's its 13th straight day higher and a new record win streak. The stock's up 41% in that time. The yield on the two-year Treasury note, which is more sensitive to monetary policy expectations, rose 8 basis points to 4.67%. That's the highest level since March. 
And in the UK, two-year gilt yields rose to their highest level since 2008 on Tuesday after strong UK wage data heightened investors' concerns over stubborn inflation. UK wage growth accelerated by 7.6% in the three months to April. Two-year gilt yields rose 26 basis points to 4.89%. That compares with their peak of 4.64% in the aftermath of the unfunded tax cuts announced in the mini-budget in last September when Liz Truss was Prime Minister. Brent crude oil settled 3.4% higher at $74.29 a barrel, recovering most of Monday's losses. Asian equities mainly rose on Tuesday. Japan's Nikkei 225 added 1.8%, rising above the key psychological mark of 33,000 for the first time since July 1990. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rebounded from opening losses after the mainland's short-term rate cut to end the day up 117 points or 0.6% at a three-week high of 19,521. This morning, the Hang Seng is projected to open 50 points lower. The Shanghai Composite was up 0.2% at 3,234. And finally, the onshore Chinese yuan weakened a third of a percent to 7.166 renminbi against the US dollar shortly after the PBOC moved Tuesday, and it's now at its weakest level since November, six months ago. The renminbi has declined 4% against the dollar this year, amid expectations of growing rate divergence with the US. If you want to get in touch, please go to my webpage, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. And while you're there, please have a look at my daily newsletter, which accompanies this show and has a lot more business and finance information from around Asia. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us our regular Wednesday morning commentator, Enzia von Feil, who is also the founder of Financial Shield and a capital preservation specialist for individuals. Morning, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also with us, Louis Coyce, who is Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Nice to see you again, Louis. Morning, Peter and Enzio. China's central bank lowered a key, term short, a key short-term policy rate Tuesday. In a surprise move, the PBOC cut its seven-day repurchase rate by 10 basis points from 2% to 1.9%. That puts about 2 billion Chinese yuan of short-term liquidity into the interbank market. The seven-day reverse repo rate sets the cost of seven-day lending from the central bank, and it's used to manage short-term liquidity. It's the first time the PBOC has done this since August 2022, but Enzio and Louis why? Because um, there's already a lot of in- liquidity, isn't there, in the interbank system, and um, you can get it quite cheaply. You can get it at about 1.8% um, at the moment. So why um, is the PBOC doing this? Well, happy to go first. Uh, you know, unfortunately for the PBOC, it wasn't really their decision. <laughs> They're not really in charge of this. Uh, they, were, they were told to do it. You know, the, the, the Chinese recovery is ongoing, but after a rebound in the start of the year, it, it is, you know, not, it's not super uh, fast at the moment, definitely not in manufacturing and in the investment sphere. Also, confidence is quite subdued. So policymakers were under pressure to do something, even though they don't want to do a lot. And I would say, look at the size of this cut rather than the, 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 rather than the fact that there was a cut. I wouldn't expect a lot of policy easing in the, in the coming months. Are they trying to send a signal then if they were told to do it? Is it basically saying, look, here we are, we're ready to lend, ready to support the economy, sort of back up uh, the government if necessary? I mean, I think 
I, I, I don't know the details of it, but I wouldn't be surprised if even the size of it is not set by them, but that they, of course, will argue in, in a, a case for certain things, but that it's unfortunately it's not under the control of the PBOC. But I do think the weak inflation data helped strengthen the case a bit for this. But again, I wouldn't see this as the start of a very significant easing campaign. Angie, what do you think? Do you find this all rather odd? I find it pointless because... I think that as long as China keeps going this very Marxist route, it will kill common prosperity. After all, the private sector accounts for 80% of urban employment, 60% of GDP, and China really risks becoming a Japan too, the one that we've all seen for the past 30-plus years of low rates, immense amounts of liquidity, and the market going precisely nowhere. And indeed, that's what the um, markets are telling us at present. The Emerging Markets Asia Index returned just 1.3%. That's the MSCIs. Whilst the MSCI Emerging Markets Asia X China returned 8.6%. Mm-hmm. The hedge funds are pulling out. They've pulled out by 31% since the end of May. And the debt pullout is about... Um, 31 billion worth of dollars um, out of out of China, and um, so X China, Asia X China. I have to get used to this now. Used to be X Japan for me. Um, is going to become a, a bit of a star, but China is just languishing because of the policy direction taken. They can ease as much as they want. It's not going to get the dead horse live again. Asia X China is going to be a significant change, isn't it, to the way in which you regard investing in, in Asia, If particularly if, if funds and clients are now calling for more products that is Asia X China. It's, it's really um, like we had 30 years ago, wasn't it, when we first started to see Asia X Japan? Yes, and that, that's, what, that's what's causing the, the rewiring in my brain, that one has to say now Asia X China, and I'm afraid that's going to last for a long time until they decide to get common prosperity really as their chief policy goal, which really can only happen through the private sector, creating that huge, unemployment, that huge employment and also treating the foreign multinationals better. Do you agree with Louis that this isn't the beginning of an easing um, cycle? Because some some people are taking this as um, you know now we're on the, on the beginning of more rate cuts that we're going to see an MLF rate cut on Thursday. Um, we're going to see a triple R cut um, as well, a cut to the medium term lending facility. What, Just for disclosure, I do think there'll be an MLF cut, but there'll oh, be do, five but... or ten basis points, and it, it'll basically just a follow up of this. But I mean, like after this rate cut, I don't expect a huge amount of additional steps. Okay. Enzio, what do you think that's right? Do you think um, we're not going to see an awful amount of, of, of easing after this, maybe a, a cut to the, uh, uh, to the MLF? I, I respectfully differ with, with Louis. Um, I just think that they will keep cutting in the futile attempt to get the economy going exactly what happened in Japan, which then went nowhere in a hurry. Hmm. So we've got important data coming out tomorrow, haven't we, Louis? We've got retail sales, industrial production, fixed assets, investment. If one of the big engines of growth for the retail sales, um, if the numbers don't deliver um, what people are expecting, and we've also seen earlier on, we've seen um, exports uh, export slow um, as well. What, what are the pillars of the economy? What, what's going to keep it going? Yeah, I'm a little bit less gloomy that I think than Enzio, but definitely less gloomy than mm. than, than the general 
impression of what's going on. When I look at the retail sales data, for instance, if you were, if you compare each month of the year with how things were in 2019, then you actually mm. see pretty good retail sales performance since the start of this year. This, when you do this, you will very nicely see the cycles during COVID with huge depressions in uh, April of last year when the, during the Shanghai lockdown, later in the year last year, but you also see a pretty nice recovery. Um, so I would say, what are the motors going forward? Uh, you know, these motors are definitely not six cylinders. They are more like, I don't know, four cylinders or so. so. Mm. I, I, but I do think that um, I, I absolutely take you know, the, the, the kind of vibe from NGO about aspects of policymaking in China. And, you know, look, what are we, we're, we're still, we're talking, yesterday we got uh, so-called uh, disappointingly low credit growth in China, but it is still growing at total social financing is still growing at 9.5% year on year. So we yes. are pumping tons of money into the economy, and I accept that, and I agree with NGO's uh, uh, impression of that. But to make the comparison with, with Japan, um, I think the only difference between China now and Japan then is that there is still a reasonable underlying pace of growth in China that is, in my view, in real terms, around between 45 and 5%. And so even a relatively weak China will still churn out numbers uh, you know along those lines and therefore i'm not as somber or at least i think i don't know what what people expected i think too many too many people had too high expectations of this recovery because we always warned wow. people that this was going to be a consumption and domestic services led economy so if you're a foreigner for instance you shouldn't have expected tons of spillover on commodities or right. whatever and you know, just, I mean, it's a good point, isn't it? Maybe we are all being too, too gloomy about um, China that, you know, OK, it's not doing as well as people were hoping, but that's because their expectations were wrong. Um, and the economy is still growing at a reasonable clip. There's still good credit growth, as, as Louis points out. Is, uh, does it make you more convinced, maybe, to, uh, to be a bit more upbeat about China? Well, I, my, my gloom is based not as much on that erroneous, and that's where I agree with Louis, um, and with you, the, the erroneous assumption, the post-COVID recovery, that it was all going to be wonderful and the sky's the limit. Indeed, at the time we were saying we were cautioning against the sky's the limit. My concern is much more the very Marxist, the strident Marxist tone taken by the policy makers, um, really saying, look, the private sector, we don't really like the private sector. It will do what, it, it will be at our, our bidding, otherwise it won't be. And I'm afraid that's my fundamental concern. It's, it's less with the extravagant expectations, to quote Borston's book, but more um, just that it's the, the, the policy direction which Beijing has taken. And again, this Marxist route versus, in my mind, this common prosperity route, even if they say it's going to lead to common prosperity, I as an economist can't understand how that's going to work. And that's my key concern. Louis, there, there is one good point here, isn't there, that despite um, the economy is not in free fall, it's not in collapse, but nevertheless, foreign investors are bailing out of this market um, in, in droves, and they're, and they're going elsewhere, like um, Japan, like South Korea, like Taiwan. Um, and is that because maybe, you know, they are just disillusioned with, uh, with the policy that's coming out of um, Beijing? I mean, that seems to be one of the things that's often cited here. I mean, we know that 
China doesn't really like shareholders. They're not interested in boosting shareholder value in the way that Japan seems to have suddenly discovered um, in, in recent yes. months. Is, is that a problem, Louis? I mean, it's a fact, right, that many people are uh, leaving China. Um, I think we should have a separate session on why, why this is <laughs> happening, because I do think that the geopolitical the geopolitics have a huge uh, deal to do with Absolutely. this. And, and, yeah. and again, you know, we should have a good discussion on what exactly is the message that Chinese leaders are trying to give. They actually are trying to give the message that we are still open for foreign business and we like the private sector. And the current prime minister is actually a remarkably pro-private sector person. But, but is it unfortunately, they don't follow that up with actions, though, do they? That's the thing. The, they say it, it but... Yes, they say it, they say it, and there's not a lot of action. And unfortunately, yeah. the, in the context of that of that geopolitical stuff and that with that greater mm -hmm. emphasis on national security, there are weird things happening uh, to foreign companies. And so this is really not helping. And I, yeah, yeah uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's sad to see. Enzia, what are your thoughts uh, about that? The geopolitics clearly taking their toll on, um, on certainly on foreign investors anyway. I think Louis has raised a very important point that absolutely you you can't you can't decry the you can't sort of leave out the the US Machiavellian vote getting stuff in the run up to the elections about being anti China when I was doing Capitol Hill China was always for free because nobody knows where it is they're all communists anyway so why even talk <laughs> with them was kind of the American view which is all a little bit closed minded but again, um, that's how they are scoring points. And any administration in America would be suicidal by siding with China. So the even just to embellish one second on that, Louis's point, just to take it one step further, as I'm sure you will probably agree, that even having these backdoor talks at a second level in China isn't going to do a whole lot of good. I think that's because the Chinese don't quite trust the Americans anymore for obvious reasons. Mm. Yeah. What about then another issue that people are worrying about? That's all the uh, the, the local government debt. Um, I think your firm, uh -huh. uh, Louis, S&P Global Ratings, they, they estimate the debt of these local government financing vehicles at more than uh, six and a half trillion US dollars. Is that another issue now that's, uh, that's putting worrying people, putting people off or should it worry people? Well, it's definitely a huge issue. It's a huge amount. Um, it's also a big issue for policymakers. And that's actually one of the reasons why I don't think that we're going to see a lot of fiscal easing this time around, because the, mm. there is quite a bit of focus on um, on both not, yes. not making this problem even worse in terms of flows, but also to try to hold these local governments accountable for this, which is actually much more difficult than it yes. sounds. Uh, so it, it's a big issue. What do you think, Enzio? I think the sky is high and the emperor is very far away indeed um, when it comes to this local government financing mess that they've got in. And um, I'm afraid also that the corruption must be rampant, as indeed Beijing has said, and it wants to clamp down on it. So I think it's a, it's a bit of a, to put it in jasters, it's a bit of a bitch's brew um, on this one. And I'm, I'm afraid that's not going to go away quickly. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Let's turn our attention to the U.S. because obviously we've got the Fed meeting uh, today. It's going to deliver its interest rate decision at about 2 o'clock in the morning, um, Hong Kong time. But the pace of inflation in the U.S. before that has eased to its lowest level in more than two years, driven by a decline in energy prices. Uh, the latest CPI slowed to 4% year on year, down from 4.9% in April. That's the lowest level since March 2021. 
The call rate, though, is at 5.3%. It's still the lowest level since November 2021. Energy costs were down 11.7%. Food inflation slowed. But shelter costs are still pretty high, 8% versus 8.1% previously. Used car inflation, and we talk about this because it is actually the second biggest contributor to the inflation basket um, in the US. That's still high, 4.4%. Uh, unchanged. Enzia, what, what do you make of this data, first of all? If you look into, you know, the headline number seems quite good, although when you dig into it, there are some, some worrying signs as well, aren't there? Well, there are because the, the, the stuff that the Fed really can't control sunspots as in food prices or OPEC politics as in energy prices and, and U.S. lobbying efforts, those things are alongside the the what the Fed can do, but more importantly for me is again let's not lose sight of the fact that the real thing that the Fed focuses on that two percent that it keeps on referring to as its target is actually something different called the core personal consumption expenditures price index, mm-hmm. and this means the the prices paid by consumers for domestic purchases of goods and services excluding food and energy. So that's what the Fed's looking at. That currently in May was running around 4.5%. That's still twice the target rate of 2%. So it's still quite alive and kicking this, um, the, the, the actual, the, the policy rate that the Fed is looking at. Louis, what, what do you think? When you look into this data, do you find some things that are worrying or are you uh, uh, going along with the markets, which rather cheered this, uh, this number? Yeah, I agree with NGO rather than the markets on this. Um, my preferred metric is to look at core inflation and then to look at how are things moving in recent months. So like take a three-month moving average of the month-on-month increase and it, or, or just take the last month-on-month increase in that core price index and it was 0.4%. That means an annualized rate of core inflation of still around 5%, which is uh, you know, right. two, two and a half times as high as the policy yeah. rate as Andrew mentioned. So, yes. uh, so in my view, as yeah. long as the labor market remains tight, uh, we are not going to see inflation coming down. So to me, the, the, the Fed is still uh, you know, only at the beginning of this battle and I don't agree with the market. If, if you're a consumer in the US, um, you you feel those some of these things, don't you? When your shelter costs are still high and don't appear to be coming down, regardless of what headline inflation may be or what the core core number may be, you as a consumer are feeling this, and it, it's going to change your spending habits, I presume. You mean the you mean the sh- shelter costs coming down. Well, they're not come, They're still high, aren't they? Right. I mean, so you, yeah. you as a yeah. consumer, yes. you're still going to rein like in your tax. spending, your discretionary spending, because you're, you're feeling the impact of, of these high yeah. prices elsewhere. That's right. But then, and and then, because you see your costs rising, you also will go for another wage increase to your employer. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 if you're a business owner, you will try to get that additional price increase. And so this 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 bat, this domestic battle, because I agree with Enzo, Enzio, what he said in the beginning about you know we often talk about oil and commodity prices. This has nothing to do with it. This is a domestic uh, dynamics, a domestic Absolutely. battle on everybody wants to increase their share of of the pie, and 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 therefore inflation will you know will remain very sticky. Now, there was an interesting reaction in the markets. Bond yields actually went up after this data. They did come off initially, um, but then they reversed course and closed actually quite a, quite a bit higher. 
Uh, the two-year yields are now at the highest uh, since March. One of the reasons I heard for that is that the Wall Street Journal had a report that um, when the Fed makes its decision tonight and releases its dot plots, uh, or its dot plot, I think it is, isn't it? it they're going to be um, they're going to be jacked up higher. So um, the Fed may well be pausing this month, but it still feels that there's more interest rates to come. What What do you think the Fed needs to do, Enzio? Well. Yeah, if I I think it's actually more the Treasury. If I'm a little bit into your patch of being bond trader, um, Peter, but I would just put forth that the Treasury has to now play catch up and issue about a trillion dollars worth of bills and please correct me, bonds. I think short-term bonds, but maybe just bills. Um, if you increase the supply, the price goes down, the yield goes up. So I think that that's also what's been happening. Um, on the the rising yield side of the equation that may have also taken some of the longer yields up with it. That I don't know. That you have to tell us. Um, but I do think that that's something that we don't want to quite forget, the, the catch-up of the Treasury trying to just... The other point that I wanted to just make um, is that the Fed, and I'm agreement with Mohammed Al-Aryan and yesterday's FT, is so focused on demand-pull inflation, it should also be looking at cost push inflation, food, energy, people not wanting to work. That's why labor markets are quite tight because the employers just can't get the people. So, of course, the people who do work can push up the wages and the, the prices, the, 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 the cost of labor, obviously. So I think it's also this, this patent neglect of the in the Fed model of the supply side of the equation that also... Um, as Arian was saying, maybe they will start finally factoring that in to mm. their policy framework. He was also saying, I think, wasn't he, that the Fed's got to think about changing its inflation targets. Absolutely. Um, and that could also be the composition again, because this mouthful that I referred to before, this personal consumption expenditure um, core personal consumption expenditure price index, that is again a demand side of the equation. It's not a supply side of the equation. So a lot of very fundamental thinking has to go on at the Fed. And I think that many people kind of like what they've been dealing with for the past 50 or so years, some of these policymakers. And maybe that's also this in, this policy intransigence is just holding up the more effective policy cognizance. Do you think, Louis, the, the central banks in general are winning their battle? Um, are they getting inflation under control? It's certainly coming off the highs that we saw earlier in the year and last year, isn't it? But is it enough to say that they are winning the battle? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, yes, cor- uh, headline inflation is going down, but that's because oil prices are down and commodity prices. On, I mean, yeah. if, and, you know, um, uh, it, it's fascinating as for an economist to hear all these debates about, you know, different ways of thinking about inflation. I think the average central banker is a bit old-fashioned and they focus a lot on um, you know wage cost increases uh, uh, how a strong labor market is going to continue to, uh, to to put pressure and they focus a lot on this core inflation just like we do so I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that there is uh, a rumor that they're going to increase their dot plot forecasts again because on you know core prices on a sequential basis still look very problematic mm. Where does the Bank of Japan fit in? We mustn't forget mm. their meeting as well this week, aren't we? Mm. And we're expecting, I think, a no-change decision from new Governor Ueda there as well. But um, what, what's your assessment of where they are? Yeah, that's a nice one because they are mm. kind of facing the 
a, a very different uh, challenge. They, the Bank of Japan is very reluctant to increase its interest rates because they don't want to do it prematurely. Mm. They definitely see inflation rising, and there are all kinds of signs that actually this is, for the first time in decades, there are things happening that, that, that we haven't seen uh, for a long time with you know uh, uh, firms offering higher wages and these, these types of things. So there is something going on, but the Bank of Japan continues to be very reluctant because the last thing that they want to do is to increase their interest rate and then see inflation dipping again to zero and even activity weakening uh, because that will be a disaster for uh, for the treasury for uh, for with Japan's high debt. And Zio, final word to you. What what do you think about the Bank of Japan? Yeah, I, I fully agree with with Louis that it's it, they're just being quite realistic and it's quite good that Wade, despite being an academic has come in and, and j- just said that he doesn't want to raise the rates. I mean, why raise them when you're just getting a little bit of life into the economy, some recovery in profits, some recovery in wages? Let's not forget that inflation is a form of a tax. But as long as people can assume that they will get stronger wages coming forward, they will be more inclined to spend. It's not the stagnant pool that we've seen. And I'm afraid where China may be headed, just back to loop back to that one, where we started this whole discussion this morning. Okay, well, thank you both very much. Great to hear your thoughts there. You heard founder of Financial Shield, Enzio von Fahl, and Louis Kois, who is the Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. I'm joined now by Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. Morning, Nick. Morning to you. So the Bank of Japan meeting uh, today and tomorrow expected to remain on hold after Governor Koizo Ueda indicated that his ultra-easy monetary policy is going to remain in place until wage gains and inflation are stable and sustainable. Are, are there any signs yet that wage gains and inflation is, is stable and sustainable? Well, I, I think what the, uh, the BOJ insists on missing is that uh, inflation Japan is really related to her to wage gains, which is a simple uh, demographic issue. You just can't print more people. And so the, the labor market is incredibly tight. The working age population shrinking at half a million a year, accelerating to three quarters of a million a year by the end of the, uh, the decade. Um, the unions uh, report 3.7% wage increases they've won. Uh, Kedan Ren, the, uh, the big business lobby, uh, reports 3.9%. Uh, and I think that the BOJ doesn't seem to want to listen to this. But I think my experience of 35 years in, in Japan is inflation is always and everywhere a wage phenomenon. Uh, we haven't had inflation before because you print money, drive up prices when wages aren't uh, rising. Or, of course, all you're going to do is... Uh, uh, crush consumption, which is irresponsible. So is is the Bank of Japan, is the reason why they're doing this, or maybe one of the reasons why they're doing this, is that they're haunted by the fact that before, um, I think on a couple of occasions, didn't they, they started raising rates um, and it all turned out to be too soon. Inflation um, didn't pick up at all. The economy sank back into deflation. Is that part of why they're doing this, that that history is sort of haunting them a little bit? Uh, to be fair, the, the history that should be haunting them is the history of the 1930s, where they, uh, they spent heavily to, to get out of uh, the Depression uh, with the BOJ printing the money, and uh, inflation accelerated quickly to over uh, 
over 10% within just a few years. And of course, ultimately, that financed their entry into uh, to war and, uh, uh, and um, desperate straits. So they know that since 2009, Japanese government debt has increased by around a half. Uh, and at some stage, you've got to have the uh, the guts to say enough is enough. We're not printing any more for you. Now, the uh, a skeptic would say maybe the reason that the uh, uh, the BOJ uh, is continuing to print is the government wants cheap money because it's going to uh, spend on increase uh, defence spending and uh, and uh, and really interesting um, plan to try and almost pay people to have children. Uh, and it doesn't want to uh, to have to raise taxes to uh, to fund that. Mm, okay. Well, look, let me let me turn our attention to the markets because um, Japan's Nikkei two two five now back to um, July nineteen ninety um, levels above thirty three thousand. People getting very excited about that. So there is a flip side to that, of course, isn't there? Which is that if we're if we're back to where we were in nineteen ninety, um, it, 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 it's a rather pitiful performance since then, I suppose. But at least it, it is the market in focus at the moment. The market is uh, definitely in focus at the moment. The, there are a lot of people trying to find reasons why they shouldn't look at it because they spent decades not looking at it and, and really don't want to do the, uh, the homework. But you look back on the 1990s and say, gosh, I don't know how we managed to flog Japanese stocks there because in a good year, the profits were lousy. In a bad year, the, the uh, corporate Japan was losing money. So you think of Japan in terms of uh, price to 10-year average uh, earnings in sort of Graham and Dodd way. And you go, the, the valuations then were absolutely uh, eye-popping. Mm. Um, but now we're in a situation where we've gone from um, extreme bubble to, uh, to anti-bubble, and Japan is very, very cheap. And people want to say, uh, I mean, the, the economists, for example, are saying, yes, but the um, the GDP growth rate is still not very good. And uh, you look back on studies that show, I think it's um, Professor Marsh et al. at uh, London Business School showing correlation between uh, economic growth and uh, market performance over over 100 years of data for 20 countries is slightly negative. But, you know, you wouldn't say, well, I'm not buying um, not buying Nestle because I don't like the, uh, the Swiss economy. And I'm, I'm not sure that the... Uh, uh, same argument doesn't apply to Japan. Mm, but even if prof- profitability is not so good, it can certainly improve, can't it, from here? And that's presumably what's also driving the market. Well, I think that's the uh, the case. I mean, certainly uh, I- I've had the questions, aren't things so good that they can't get any better? And I say, well, look <laughs> at those, those profit margins. They're still absolutely lousy. So they absolutely have to get better. But the reason that the government's got its focus on this is because it's got its uh, vast, uh, Japan's vast pension funds, uh, with the exception of the go- uh, government, GPIF, they're all extremely underweight equity, which is a dreadful position to be in. If you're going from deflation into uh, to inflation, so they need to get out of bonds into equity, and the whole thing has to work. So uh, companies have to produce uh, economic returns, and they have to share those returns with um, with their investors, which is what corporate governance reform is all about. Mm, what, what is also interesting is that um, foreign investors who are very disappointed in the Chinese markets at the moment and have really been bailing out in their droves, 
are now talking uh, about having an Asia X China product, just like back in the 1990s, we started to see Asia X Japan. People are now calling for Asia X China, which I presume is, a, a, first of all, it's a significant shift, isn't it, um, in, in terms of performance expectations, but also, presumably, this is going to benefit Japan as well. Well, I think it is. Certainly, Japan is already benefiting from a certain amount of uh, French shoring, uh, TSMC building uh, a, a plant down in Kyushu, um, Samsung spending a bit there. But uh, there's the, certainly the feeling that um, that uh, investment in Japan would uh, would benefit from from this whole French shoring issue. So, yes, I think people are looking at uh, Japan in a whole new way, uh, and the question that. Um, that doesn't get voiced out loud is how much of the uh, the recovery in the Japanese market is a not China trade. Mm. And of course, the other thing is that this uh, the Tokyo Stock Exchange's uh, sort of name and shame campaign. Maybe you could explain for our listeners a little bit more about that who may not be familiar with what the TSE has actually been doing and why that's been so significant. Yeah, it's been uh, obviously Japan is a, a market where broadly half of companies uh, trade below book, um, and the incoming uh, CEO of uh, of the stock exchange um, uh, Yamazaki has uh, has come up with a um, a, a uh, plan that says companies that are uh, trading below book must produce a. Uh, improvement plan for how they should get back above book um and to be honest a lot of uh, investors have just said trading below book lots of cash um will uh, press them for uh, for share buybacks mm. uh, so almost immediately after um the announcement uh, in under two two weeks after it citizen did a uh, 26% share buyback and uh, said in its announcement that the the G- jpx uh, the stock exchange uh, move was the uh, the trigger for that. And a lot of others have said so since. So Japan is, of course, awash with cash. And uh, there is uh, a, a lot of excitement about what can happen to, to dividends and buybacks. Now, obviously, uh, CEO uh, Yamaji has been stressing, look, we're looking for something that's sustainable, uh, not a one-off. Mm. Uh, but people have said, yeah, 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 but which is the next citizen uh, watch, which is, has been quite amusing to watch. I, I presume then this is almost causing some panic amongst, uh, amongst companies and, and their boards because um, the, the threat is what? That they get delisted if they don't meet these, uh, these targets? No, I think um, the, the CEO has, has um, repeatedly said, sorry, that, that there's not a, um, a suggesting that you'll get uh, delisted. I mean, this whole thing is about name and shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, my first uh, uh, gut feeling was it, it's only complier explained. There's, there's no uh, legal force behind it. And then I was quickly warned, no, 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 uh, the name and shame has huge effects in, um, in Japan, as in many other uh, uh, Asian nations. So it's it, it's had an effect without the uh, the threat of uh, um, without the threat of stick. But what what is happening is there, there there's more activist shareholders now um, in Japan and they're and they're ousting or getting close to ousting some pretty high profile chairmen and CEOs from their from their companies. 
Well, yes. I mean, I think the one that caught everyone's um, eye was uh, Canon, the, uh, mm. the, the electronics company, where um, Mitarai, uh, the, uh, the CEO there, his support went over a period of two years from 90% down to 50.6%. Now, if he'd got... Um, one share less than 50 percent he would have been uh, he would have been out a lot of people have tried to say ah oh, this is because he doesn't have enough women on his board so, no it's not it's because operating margins and roe uh, uh halved on his watch and uh they used to have 1.1 trillion yen worth of uh uh, of cash pile and they spent that on share buybacks and now that's gone they go okay now what are you going to do Mm. So how, how sustainable is this rally? Are, are you optimistic that this can continue? And could it even maybe get back to all-time highs? I mean, in what, another 5,000 points, it's, um, you know, we'll be back at new all-time highs for the Nikkei. It would be really nice to get past the, uh, the all-time highs, just as a... Um, a sentiment indicator that with uh, Japan's put that behind it. But... Um, but I think the, Japan's got a lot going for it. I mean, it, it's benefiting from the least dirty shirt syndrome this year in that um, that it's reopening late and uh, that's allowing it to grow when others are, um, are running out of puff from their, uh, their own reopening. Um, so still consumption is recovering. Uh, tourist arrivals are, uh, are picking up. Um, and there's a feeling that that cushions it through the... Um, through any uh, global uh, slowdown, and then Japan's a geared, geared play on uh, on global recovery. So I think that there is uh, more to it in in terms of well, it's certainly not expensive at the moment, especially when you do the uh, required calculation of of uh, uh, comparing its uh, valuations with uh, with the uh, interest rate, which is so very much lower than elsewhere by sort of three hundred basis points or so. Well, fascinating stuff. We're, we're following this closely because it's, uh, it's suddenly Japan's become an exciting go-go market. Thanks very much, Nick, for that. Always a pleasure uh, to talk to you. That's Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safepro Group. Have a great day. Money Talk 